Hey, Kurt, have you actually talked to Bill or Paul before on Skype? Uh, I have never talked to anybody via Skype, I'm afraid. Oh. I've had a couple of video calls, but uh, not, nothing with the uh, Back to the Bins folks. Wow. Well, there they are right now. Hello, Paul. Hi, Bill. Let me introduce you to Kurt Greenfield. Hey, hi, guys. Uh, uh, hello? Hello? Uh, we, uh, are you there? We, we can hear you. Can you hear I us? I can hear you guys. Hey. I, oh, no. What are we going to do? He just typed me a message. He says, go on with the show. You'll do fine. Okay. How can we do a back to the bins without our main hosts? Yeah, we both have books. Oh, that's a change. <laughs> At least we've got one. Poor Bill. Oh, I didn't mean to slam Bill like that. Bookless Bill. Well, he oh. can't hear us anyway, I guess. Yeah, that's so, right. uh, you know, that's right. he'll never know. That's right. Back to the bin. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Hello, uh, and, and welcome uh, to uh, Back to the hey, Bins. I'm hey, your uh, hey, temporary hey, host hey, here. Hey, hey, I thought we decided I was going to do this. No, no. They they wanted the best West Virginia correspondent, and I thought we agreed that was me. Don't so uh, I'm all set. I'm I'm ready to go here, and you know, don't make me hang up on you. <laughs> Please don't do that. It took too long to get connected. Okay. Well, all right, I'll tell you what. Okay, I'll let you bring us in. Okay. But I've got the first book. Okay, I'm Marvel. Marvel is usually first, isn't it? Yes, okay. always. Good rule. <clears throat> la la la. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm one of your substitute hosts for this month, which Back to the Bins is calling Assistant Editor's Month. My name is Russell Bragg, and I host DC Comics Presents Show. And my co-host is... I'm Kirk Greenfield. I'm a co-host of the Imperious Rex Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast, which sometimes records with my daughter. But uh, you, you probably are not familiar with that. So we'll just say <laughs> I'm an assistant uh, host as well. Very good. I'm up to episode one, if <laughs> <laughs> hey, they get better. <laughs> they sound good to me. You're making me understand Submariner, which is something I could never do by myself. You're very helpful in that. Do we have any common banter, like anything you bought recently? or? Yes. Okay. To tell you the truth, although this should probably be saved for one of Paul's other shows, there's a miniseries out right now, The Avengers 1.1, uh -huh. 2.1, 3.1, 4.1. Apparently, this is going back to the time of Cap's kooky quartet, uh -huh. as I refer to them <laughs> affectionately. Cap's recruits, I guess, is a little bit more polite way to say it. When the old order changeth, when the first change to the Avengers lineup occurred. Uh -huh. So this is positioned sort of in between the other episodes, the other the, the original issues. Not exclusively in between every one, but that's the time period that they are recreating and revisiting for at least the second time that I'm aware of. I really liked it, and I've called it to the attention. I've, I've posted a couple things on Back to the Bin saying, hey, look at this. It's coming back. 
if only because I know that Paul wanted to do an Avengers spotlight uh-huh. kind of looking at that period. I've uh, sent him a bribe asking him to yeah. get off his keister and, and uh, get, going, get on with it, and I think he actually responded. I think that's good. probably out there already. Good. Anyways, it's really good. I'm enjoying it. The first issue is better than the second as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and I think the third is just recently come out as we've recorded this. I think there are only four in this series. So uh, that's my Avengers news. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Good. Well, I have a floor full full of comics, but it, there's nothing that I bought recently to talk of. I have one other side mention okay. of something that I'm buying. Almost parallel with that same series. It's almost like Marvel has gotten the message that, geez, they've really made a misstep and they've, you know, they've tuned out or they've offended the older generation who just stepped away from buying comics when uh-huh. they rebooted huh they're doing a mini series with the great lakes avengers this was a kind of a tongue-in-cheek team a third avengers title that came back in the i think it was the 1990s that hawkeye attempted to uh, head up and whip into shape it was always a little on the humorous side they had a couple of appearances in the avengers and now after you know uh, probably 20 years or so they've come back for another four-part miniseries, mm-hmm. and I'm finding it very well done. I've seen like three issues of it. It's probably only four, but I don't know that for sure, where they're dusting off the concept and putting them back together again and trying to locate them in Detroit in an abandoned factory. Oh. Anyways, it's, it's, you know, it's an acquired taste. You, yeah. you either recognize that this is sort of tongue-in-the-cheek, and I think the artist is Marshall Rogers, don't quote me on that, but it's okay. it's nice for us old folks who remember the 90s and affectionately remember the early appearances. I always thought they had a, a great deal of potential, whether or not I'm from the Great Lakes area, because I was from Michigan, but uh, I've enjoyed it a great deal. So those are the two, uh, unfortunately, mini-series that I would recommend that you take a look at. I know that Paul and the others always say that they are disenfranchised by yeah. the mainstream comics right well you know this is a, uh, an effort to appeal to some of us who are right. not buying issues currently so i'd recommend them good i'd probably wait till a paperback comes out but i don't know if, if it's going to be big enough to encompass it a paperback or not good question i don't know mm-hmm. but yeah that would be another way to do it because that's pretty much what i do with the newer stuff anymore is wait till a paperback comes out and then if it piques my interest then i'll, I'll get it i got nothing you got nothing more? Um, people are starting to talk about the next Avengers movie mm-hmm. excitedly. And the next movie that's going to be out, I think, is Logan uh, someplace in oh. February or March. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the trailer for that. It looks good, but uh, I am i don't know the storyline completely. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I could assume, but I, I really don't know. I think we, people are enjoying it. Because we have another year till the Avengers movie comes out, don't we? Thor comes first. I think. And Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Yeah. So maybe it's a while, but I've seen yeah. some speculation online, people talking about it. So Uh-oh. That's never a good or, idea. Or looking for Easter eggs, you uh-huh. know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Speculating on what the storyline's going to be or mm-hmm. how they're going to play it. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. I'm looking forward to it. I still haven't actually watched the Thor movie all the way through, so I don't know if we're going to go see Thor 3 or not. Really? You haven't seen either of the the first two movies? Uh, Not all the way through Thor 1. I haven't seen anything of Thor 2. You fell asleep, huh? I must have. I don't know. On TV, it usually catches me right where... Oh, boy, Thor is on, and then it's where I usually picked up the last time I started watching. I have the Blu-ray, but we just haven't popped it in yet. 
So need to do something yeah. like a date night. Okay, for our anniversary, honey, we're going to watch Thor. Mm-hmm. That'll go over really great. I think she liked it, and I think she'd go to see Thor 3 because Hulk's going to be in it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it picks up where Avengers 2 left off, and maybe Thor's right. going off to look for Hulk. I don't know. Or just happens to find him wherever he ends up. Speaking of great Thor-Hulk conflicts, mm-hmm. I want to heartily endorse, heartily recommend that people search out Journey into Mystery number 112. It was one of the first Thors that I had, one of the earliest ones I had, and it's a one-shot mm-hmm. that looks at the story. See, everything goes back to the Avengers. It yep. looks at the conflict between the two characters, but it's told in a flashback as Thor stumbles across two groups of rival kids in the neighborhood that are chanting that Thor is stronger than Hulk. No, Hulk is stronger mm-hmm. than Thor. <laughs> so he sits down and they say, well, you, you tell us the truth. So he says, well, I did fight him once. It was back in Avengers number three. And, well, let me tell you. So he goes off in this a little exaggerated, long tale of how they kind of got separated from the rest of the group for a hand-to-hand struggle. Uh-huh. Very powerful. It's drawn by Jack Kirby. It's some of the most violent, Hulk, fearsome images of him that I have ever seen. Wow. Literally, it's kind of an expansion of the one or two panels that you see in that Avengers 3. But it goes on for like 16 pages, and then Thor kind of gets his a misty look in his eye as they kind of come back to the, the current uh, fight. And they say, well, well, so what was it? Who was stronger? And he kind of snaps out of his, his daydream and say, oh, forget it. i got to get on with it. So long, guys. And he takes off. So you, you don't really get a definitive answer, mm-hmm. but it's a very entertaining one-shot. I strongly recommend you look for it. Okay. Um, I don't know exactly where it was reprinted off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's in the Marvel Masterworks, mm-hmm. and I know it's in um, Essential Thor, but it's a great one-shot standalone story that ties in to established continuity. The only thing is, you just don't know if you're getting the truth, or if Thor is embellishing it, yeah. or if he's um, you know, telling them what they want to hear, mm-hmm. or a little of everything. Or if the reason Thor didn't answer the question is because he lost. Uh, oh, I, we're pretty I, sure that he uh, didn't, because we know how the the, the uh, Avengers issue wraps up. But uh, it's, it's it's very entertaining. You'll you'll get a big kick out of it. Mm-hmm. I have to look that up. I can't really think of anything else unless you got any more. No, no. We should probably start okay. with the books. Okay. Well, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. I have the Marvel book. Uh, we should at least back up a step here to explain, okay. since we knew that this was going to be an assistant editor's month on Back to the Bins. I decided to go back and take a look at a book from the original Assistant Editor's Month that was a stunt across all of Marvel Comics. And so there, you know, my favorite artist at the time was John Byrne, and he was doing two books. One was Fantastic Four, and the other was Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight was only about six issues in. I want to quote a little explanation. Now, I don't have the actual issue we're going to cover, which is Fantastic Four 262 in front of me, but I do have the reprint of it in a trade called The Trial of Galactus. And because this story is so out of the ordinary, the editor decided, hey, you know, we need a couple of paragraphs to explain what in the world happens because we shift tone and point of view here. And so this is a a pretty good little explanation of, of what Assistant Editor's Month was. And again, this was back in the uh, 1980s. It says, and I'm in the middle of the trade paperback book here, the following and final segment deserves a bit of explanation. One summer, all of Marvel's editors were sent to the yearly San Diego convention, leaving the assistant editors, quote, in charge of the books for one month. Then editor-in-chief 
Jim Shooter ordered that something unusual be done in all the books that assistant editors would do. Since it coincided with the wrap-up of John's Galactus storyline, he decided to borrow something that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby had established way back in Fantastic Four number 10 and have himself appear as the Fantastic Four's chronicler. With that in mind, let's join him on his trip across the universe to witness our smashing conclusion. Bring a warm sweater, it might get mighty cold in the interstellar void. So that kind of gives you a, a summary or an introduction to why this is so different. Yeah. All books that came out this particular month, and I think, I don't hold my feet to the fire here, but I think it was August of 1982, I could be wrong. All books that came out featured a rubber stamp on the cover or an imprint that said, warning, it's assistant editor's month, beware of anything, anything could happen. Hmm. And some of them were whimsical tales, some of them were just out of canon, some of them were clearly characters were out of character. Uh, it was an intentional stunt. But Byrne did two different things. He approached them two different ways. In Alpha Flight, he decided to have some fun with the audience. And so you heard the expression, uh, boy, it, it's so white out there. You know, it's like a polar bear yeah. in a snowstorm. I can't find it. I can't see it. He literally did that as a character in Alpha Flight. That issue would summon the snowstorm. And about four or five pages in as the fight breaks out, Suddenly, the snowstorm starts, and the artwork faded away. The sound effects were there. The word balloons were there. The thought balloons were there. But the artwork literally faded to white. And for the next four to six pages, there was no artwork. It's just white. And you can hear the thump, crash, boom, and the, the comments that are made. And then finally, as the villain is defeated, the artwork fades back in, as the snowstorm ends, you either love it or you hate it. People were either tickled by it or just furious that they paid full price for that issue. For, for nothing, yeah. <laughs> and and they lost about a third of the book. Huh. So I can understand some of it, but hey, it was a stunt. It, yeah. you know, it was a joke, and as such, I think it worked. On the other hand, on Fantastic Four, he went in a different direction. And so we start with Fantastic Four 262. Fantastic Four, number 262. Title of your story is The Trial of Reed Richards. Cover date is January 1984. On sale date is October 18, 1983. Your cover price is 60 cents. Your writer, penciler, and anchor is John Byrne. Your letterer is James R. Novak. Your colorist is Glennis Ween, who went on to be known as Glennis Ween Oliver. And your cover credits, both pencils and inks, go also to John Byrne. And your editor is Michael Higgins. This book has been reprinted two times. First, in trade paperback from 1989 is Fantastic Four Trial of Galactus. And second, also in trade paperback from 2005 is Fantastic Four Visionaries, Volume 4. And if you'd like to get a podcast with another perspective of this issue, head on over to iTunes and look up an official 75 Greatest Marvel Countdown podcast, episode number 71. Your host is W. Blaine Dollar, and his guest was Andrew Leyland. We'll take a look at the cover here. If you haven't seen it, this is uh, basically a red cover. It's a what we used to call a character study. It has a single figure in the forefront to the reader so that you can see the proportions. And it's something like an artist sketch that they would have over their drawing board so they could always get the proportions right and draw them. It's Reed Richards, and he's standing in manacles. Literally, his forearms, his uh, wrists are cuffed together, and he's anchored to the ground. Now... We know Mr. Fantastic could stretch and just get out of these, but it's symbolic, so we have to accept it. Mm -hmm. 
it's him in natural color, but he's in front of a red wallpaper background. And this wallpaper background has all the faces of all the aliens that are seen inside this issue. And just the headshots all over the place. This is reminiscent of the 100th issue of The Amazing Spider-Man, where they did something very similar over a black background. But that kind of harkens back to it. You would not know that this was Assistant Editor's Month, except for a couple of very subtle things that Byrne did. In the upper left-hand corner, where the corner box would normally be, he's put a post-it note, and I think it's in green, and basically it says, Hey guys, I know it's Assistant Editor's Month, but let's not do anything too silly on the cover, okay? Love and kisses, John. All right, so there's your, your rubber stamp. He didn't put a rubber stamp, but it clearly tells you this is going to be a little different. Now, if you look at the faces on this cover, there are many notable people here. In fact, the larger ones, it's Ben, Johnny, Sue, Ascrawl, Guardian, Lalandra, the Empress of the Shari civilization, and a couple of others. I wasn't sure if Delphine Courtney from Alpha Flight was there, but if you, you could just get lost staring at all these faces. None of them are terribly prominent, but there's one other clue here on the cover that references that this is Assistant Editor's Month, and I asked Russell to take a look to see if he could spot it. Have you been able to do anything on your homework assignment to find it? No, I found nothing. <laughs> okay. I'm, that's not unusual. If the corner box in the upper left-hand corner is a very clear indication Look in the bottom right-hand corner. There's a very subtle indication. Look at the last face that's under the word Richards on the extreme bottom right-hand corner. Depending on how your issue is trimmed, you may see a little bit more or a little bit less of the face. Have you got it yet? Yeah. It's Charlie Brown. That's what I was going to say, Charlie Brown or Linus. From Peanuts. There's no no question about it. (laughs) Anyways, that's his other little sly wink. Fortunately, it's a a one-use only, so they didn't have to pay copyright for it, but... That's the cover, and I wanted to call attention to you. There's no real variant on this cover. There was only this one, but depending on where in the print run your copy was done, the background is blood red, bright red. Mm-hmm. Or in later issues, as the ink was running out, later copies on the print run, I mean, say, it faded a little bit to pink or a little bit toward the orange. Uh-huh. But just to be aware, there are two different gradations on this. Right. Both are the, are the same value. There's really no change in them at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so shall we get inside and take a look at the issue? We shall. All right. I want to, uh, I was lazy. I took a page from Dr. Bill's oh, book on don't. how to steal synopsis. Yeah. Well, I do that all the time, if you've ever listened to my show. My <laughs> so I, I my went to Marvel Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and I looked at what they had listed here, and I thought it was so well written, mm-hmm. and it's probably the best way to get through this. Rather than read the whole issue to right. you, this is a really good summary. Once I get through this, then we can go back and take a look at some of the artwork inside and discuss it. So bear with me. I'm going to kind of narrate this for a while. Have at it. Synopsis for The Trial of Reed Richards. At the offices of Marvel Comics, editor Michael Higgins is pleading to get his writer-artist John Byrne to pump out another Fantastic Four comic before the printing deadline. Despite the desperate need, John informs Mike that he hasn't heard from the Fantastic Four in a while. But he wants another 24 hours to try to get a hold of the group to learn of their current adventures before giving up and writing a made-up story. John calls the Baxter buildings, but his call is answered by the FF's robotic receptionist, Roberta, who informs John that the Fantastic Four are still away. As John hangs up the phone, he is suddenly visited by the Watcher, who quickly teleports John away before his wife gets home. As they speed through the cosmos... 
the Watcher tells John that the coming events are of such cosmic significance that a chronicler will be needed to record the events for later. Suddenly they appear in the middle of the Galactus Tribunal trial for the life of Reed Richards. John is taken to Sue, Ben, and Johnny, who tell him that Reed is being put on trial for sparing the life of Galactus. Sue goes on to point out that the head of the trial is Empress Lalandra, the leader of the Shari. She mentions how Lalandra appeared before them one night and warned Reed that he would be put to task if Galactus consumed another inhabited world after he, Reed, spared the life of the Eater of Worlds. When Lalandra calls the trial to begin, the Thing wonders how a jury will be able to reach a decision. One of the aliens calls Ben's attention to the strange glowing globes above the court. The alien explains that they measure the spectators' collective feelings about the trial, and that should they all turn white, it's a sign that those gathered to watch have found Reed guilty. First to the stand is the Skrull survivor, Karen Kier, that's spelled with a K, who explains how Galactus came to the home world of the Skrulls and consumed it, wiping out billions of his people as a result of Reed sparing the life of Galactus. Thinking to himself, Reed is consumed with guilt over the loss of life thanks to his decision, but still believes that allowing Galactus to die was not right. Lantra then calls upon witness after witness to testify about the atrocities Galactus has committed upon world upon world. As the trial drags on, the Watcher tells the Human Torch that he has a task he wishes the youth to undertake, and Johnny agrees to do it and is promptly teleported away. When John and the rest of the Fantastic Four express their concern, the Watcher explains that he is gathering up a defense for Reed. With the witness testimony given, the Watcher tries to tell those gathered that Galactus serves a greater purpose in the universe. With that said, he has Reed Richards defend himself first. Reed shocks all gathered, saying that he is guilty of sparing the life of Galactus. When given a chance to clarify what he means, Reed says he's guilty of sparing the life of Galactus. The point of the trial is to determine if doing so was a crime. He goes on to explain that his first encounter with Galactus and how he learned that the cosmic being was, quote, beyond good and evil and only consumed worlds to prolong his own existence. He goes on to explain that Galactus exists as a higher order in the greater good of the universe, carrying out some king of task beyond the ken of mere mortals. With Reed's testimony, Johnny returns with a first witness, Odin, the Allfather of Asgard. Odin is called to recount what he knows about the origins of Galactus. Odin recounts how Galactus was once merely a man named Galen who lived on the planet Tau, a world that existed in the universe prior to this one. When Tau was in the throes of a deadly plague, Galen and the last survivors of his world flew into the heart of Tau's nearby sun, where they hoped to die in a blaze of glory. However, the universe collapsed. When the Big Bang occurred and a new universe was created, a lone ship also emerged from the beginning. Sometime later, it was discovered by one of the Watchers, who witnessed as Galen emerged from the vessel transformed into Galactus. Odin goes on to explain that the purpose of Galactus is to test the lives of inhabited worlds to see if they are worthy to continue existing in the universe. Although the Fantastic Four and John Byrne are glad to hear this testimony, they are disappointed when they see that it has not swayed the audience and they are quickly coming to find Reed guilty. Before more of the globes can turn white, they are blasted out of the sky by Nova, the current herald announcing the arrival of Galactus himself. As Galactus towers over everyone, Zian Zar, 
it's spelled with an X, Zianzar tries to make an attempt to kill Galactus himself. However, he quickly loses his nerve and cowardly slinks away. Galactus has come to speak on the behalf of Reed Richards, a man he has come to consider a friend and is indebted to for saving his life. Galactus explains that he is part of a grander scheme in the universe. In order to prove this point, Galactus and the Watcher channel their powers together to summon Eternity, the embodiment of all existence. Eternity reiterates what everyone has said and then reveals the very secrets of Galactus to all gathered. The truth, the details of which become fleeting and quickly forgotten, convince all gathered that Reed is innocent of any wrongdoing and he and the Fantastic Four are allowed to go free. Three hours later, John Byrne finds himself back at his home explaining everything to Mike, who finds the story too far out, but tells John to get it done as quickly as possible. The Watcher, still in his presence, John asks what will happen to Galactus now. The Watcher surmises that the World Devourer will continue testing worlds until one develops enough power to destroy him. On that day, the Watcher explains, the universe will weep. And that's the end of the summary. That's the end of this arc. And that's not quite the end of the trade paperback, but it is the the uh, exclamation point at the end of this long mm-hmm. high point that uh, John Byrne was developing in the Fantastic Four. And John has been quoted as saying, well, this was my Let's Justify Galactus arc. Uh, A lot of people point to it as the pinnacle of his about six-year run, as I recall, maybe eight-year run on the Fantastic Four. Any questions? Well, I went through it once, and I sort of got the gist of it, but I liked your your synopsis really filled in a lot of holes. Uh, Again, tip of the hat to uh, Marvel Wikipedia for doing it. This is a very wordy issue. Not a lot of action, but it's high concept. Yeah, I don't even think a punch was thrown with it. Uh, very little. Just uh, a couple of skirmishes between Nova and a couple of others. Yeah. It's basically a trial. Nobody thought that a, a, a TV series based on trials was going to work. Perry Mason is the exception to the yeah, rule. that's right. Courtroom dramas, just they bomb in comic books. <laughs> but, you know, this is, is Byrne's effort to explain or justify Galactus. Why Matt Murdock had to be a, a trial lawyer, you know, they kind of skip over that as much as they can because there's not a lot of excitement in trials, but, you know, John jazzed this up with cosmic guest stars and, and testimony as much as he could. So mm-hmm. I respect it a great deal. When I finished this issue, when it came out, I set it down and went, what a cop-out. But boy, I really liked it. <laughs> How many issues does this entail altogether? The whole arc? Yeah. Well, the trade paperback that has been reprinted in, I think it was reprinted in April of 1989 or so, incorporates something on the order of eight issues. Hmm. However, they've been heavily edited, so you get only the main storyline. It's a little difficult to say. It started in about Fantastic Four 236, and it jumps around a little bit until it climaxes at 262, but you don't get every issue in between that run. You just kind of jump to each time that Galactus appears Hmm. or that there's some development that is significant in this. It covers a lot of ground, and the trade paperback reads really well. Byrne was uh, quoted as saying he was very surprised that he had to do as little rewriting or as little modification of the original pages to make it work, occasionally putting in a footnote saying, okay, we're not going to follow this part of this story. Go find the issues if you want. Instead, we're going to follow the main storyline, and it goes here. Right. You know, boy, it covers the entire Marvel Universe, the Avengers, the Skrulls, the X-Men, the Heralds of Galactus, the Fantastic Four, the Silver Surfer, 
Yeah. Uh, the West Coast Avengers, it touches on virtually everybody in some way or another. Yeah. And, you know, the burn was bringing grandeur back to the Fantastic Four. He was starting from the basics. That's why the first issue he worked on was called Back to the Basics. And just as the run with Jack and Stan did, he worked slowly and started building in larger and larger concepts and then making more and more involved stories and introducing roughly parallel at the same point Dr. Doom, the Inhumans, Galactus, and built to this crescendo. But he continued on for another oh, three, four years after this with other storylines that he had in mind. Again, this is one of the two high point or two major arcs and two major runs in the Fantastic Four that virtually everybody says are just the best. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't read the Fantastic Four without reading Stan and Jack's run and reading uh, Burns' run. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I always hear. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably John Burton needs to come back to the Fantastic Four because you don't hear much about him anymore. Well, I think he's content doing Star Trek and IDW books and just kind of working on the side. I just read something on Facebook today where somebody said, boy, his work is stellar, but he's a curmudgeon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that may be true, but uh, boy, I love his output. I just, he's he's always been good in my book. (laughs) Although I've met him once or twice, and yeah, he was a cold fish or... Prickly. That's Prickly is probably. But I'm too. not here to discuss burn. Right. right. You I'm, want to talk about the insides of the book? Okay. I do have one question about the Watcher. Sure. Uh, of course, everybody knows he's usually in the What If books. Did he pretty much only appear as a character in Fantastic Four books, or has he ever appeared in any other? Because I think I remember other stories where the Watcher helped out the Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. but I don't remember any other comics he might have helped out in. Off the top of my head, he first appears in Fantastic Four 13. He comes back in Fantastic Four 29. Both of those are adventures featuring the Red Ghost and his super apes. <laughs> and then he comes back for the first Galactus trilogy, where he warns the Fantastic Four, Galactus is coming, we need to do something, this is going to be the end of the world. He's not supposed to get involved, but you know, right. anytime he shows up, he tends to. He sort of changed his tune by now, because now he's trying to defend Galactus. And, oh, yeah. And that was, uh, or at least Reed look, Richards. Yeah, right. He's always had a soft spot for, uh, for the Fantastic Four, and for Earth in particular. Mm-hmm. He's also appeared in the X-Men, and I'm trying to think exactly where that was. I, I guess it's issue... 137 when they have the trial of phoenix and they battle the imperial guard on the the moon in the blue area of the moon and some of the artwork is taken almost panel for panel from the original fantastic four appearances Hmm. burn drawing that and it just kind of tweaked it a little bit or or done uh, homages or or swipes from the original artwork, it's it's. I didn't realize that at the time, but he he really did a great job because it anchors it. You're really convinced that they are there you know, on the moon and that they're in the Watcher's house. I'm trying to think where else the Watcher has shown up. When um, T'Challa and Storm get married, uh, just fairly recently in in Marvel history, everybody assembled for the wedding. Everybody thought, oh, this is great. This is a match made in heaven. And one of the people who shows up without any announcement, without any comment, is the Watcher who just suddenly appears in the background and everybody kind of turns and looks and goes, well, it's either he's giving his blessing or he's here to witness something that's momentous or he's here for warning. And he never says a word. He doesn't interact. He doesn't do anything except appear, which is taken to be a nod saying, 
this is a momentous occasion, and this is one that needs to be witnessed firsthand. Right. Marriage didn't last, <laughs> much to my uh, disappointment, but that's the only and the most recent time that I can think of that he has appeared. There have been various mini-series that have shown up. I'm trying to think what the most recent one was called. Who Watches the Watchers? Or I can't think of the name of it, but the Watcher is dead, and somebody has stolen his eyeballs. Uh, it's, it's kind of a gross concept, but yeah. as you go through this eight-issue arc, there's an investigation to figure out, well, who had the power, or what are they seeking, or who could it be? And I don't think it was very satisfying hmm. by the time you got to the end of it. But, you know, that's that's modern Marvel. Um, yeah. A lot of people were... were disillusioned by that point i'm not sure where else the watcher has shown up except for you know just maybe a little guest star in the background in in thor here or there he's probably shown up in the silver surfer someplace but yeah to answer your question he is basically a fantastic four character or guest star his roots are in the fantastic four and i would think if you wanted to use him you'd have to ask the editor for the fantastic four for permission yeah Hmm. that satisfies me you want to go in in the book? There are a couple of things I want to point out to okay. you. First page is a split panel and shows John on one side and his editor on the other, and there's probably a few in-jokes here with things pinned on the wall or what have you. This approach is harkening way back to Fantastic Four number 10, where in a change-up in format, Stan and Jack appear in the Fantastic Four book as the chroniclers of the Fantastic Four, as if they were real characters, Mm -hmm. just publishing a comic version of them. And as they're sitting there saying, man, got to come up with a good villain for this issue. Who could we do? How about a guy named Faultsface who wears a big mustache and a big nose and says Jack and stands like, no, 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 no. Whatever happened to the great villains like Dr. Doom? Too bad he had to die. He was a great one. We really broke the mold with him. And who should walk in the front door of Marvel Comics but it's Dr. Doom, (laughs) who then forces them to call Reed Richards to say, hey, come down here, we have a problem. You know, he manipulates them into kidnapping Reed Richards, and the story goes on from there. So Byrne, by positioning himself as a chronicler in the front framing device for this, is hearkening back, way back to issue 10, and playing on something that has, you know, was done by the original creators. What else here? There's On the bottom of page three, there's sort of a photo collage. That sort of artwork hasn't been seen since Jack Kirby was on the book. He does a terrific two-page spread at the trial of Reed Richards on the, the next two pages. They did a nice flashback here of Lalandra showing up in the Richards bedroom. Literally, they weren't sure if it was a dream or not. I remember when that happened in the Fantastic Four earlier issues. I can't remember which issue it was, but... At the time, it seemed a little rude to invade, you know, Reed and Sue's bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see what else here. He consumed the Skrull world. I'm not certain who this survivor is, if it's supposed to be the um, Super Skrull. I think not. I think all their names begin with K. He at least testifies against them. What else? Oh, the Human Torch's journey across space and time to go get Odin is a callback to the first Galactus trilogy back in about issue 49 when the watcher sends him to go get a device that is known as the ultimate nullifier it's the uh what do they call it the MacGuffin that checkmates galactus it's the thing that that turns him away from the earth Mm -hmm. anyway so this journey you know he's really structured this he's really plucked some concepts from the early run and used them to great effect Odin, when he appears, has a patch over one eye because apparently in the Thor books at that point, Odin had sacrificed one of his eyes for knowledge. 
apparently this was part of North mythology, and so that's why he shows up with a patch on his eye. I don't know that he continued to wear it. He has it in the movie, so I assume he still has it in the comics, too. Uh, the birth of Galactus and the tale of Tau and Galen, that was, I think, told in... Oh, where was I guess that was in the Thor uh, storyline. Jack Kirby was awfully upset that Stan kept taking the characters in different directions and not even consulting him <laughs> when he would embroider things in other directions. That's one of the reasons why he left Marvel. He wanted to do his own thing, and he was tired of Stan yeah. usurping or taking him in other directions. Let's see what else. I'm skipping over it. Oh, the only action, of course, when Nova shows up. Destroying the jewels. Yeah, yeah. Who's to say how that was going to turn out, if he was going to be found guilty or not? But, oh, oh, this is something I wanted to point out to you. About uh, four pages from the end or so, three or four pages, there's this full-page panel of Galactus where it's a head and shoulder shot of Galactus, Mm -hmm. and he's kind of cocked to one side looking at the reader. And in a checkerboard pattern all over him, there are multiple images of Galactus in the same pose but drawn as if he is from a different race, a different alien race. So they're all posed exactly the same, but it's demonstrating how each member of the aliens that are present are perceiving Galactus in accordance with their race. So he's human for human eyes. He's Skrull-like for Skrull eyes. He is robotic for the robotic aliens, and so on. This is a really important concept that Byrne has just introduced, and I think it's spectacular, because the question was always, Hey, when Galactus shows up for the first time, why does he look vaguely human? Why is he wearing shorts? And why is there a G on his belt buckle? When do he have his own language? And part of the point is, well, you're seeing it through the human eyes. He's, his essence, whatever it is, is being interpreted by each person that observes him. Next page, we have a little interlude where one of the characters that was introduced the issue before in 261. I'm trying to think what his name is. I can't pronounce it. Zanzar. Zanzar, yeah. Yeah, he's he's uh, kind of a red-skinned alien who's an assassin. It kind of reminds me of Star Wars, like he's uh, Boba Fett or somebody. Anyways, his plan is he's going to sneak up on Galactus and shoot him. But the fact that he doesn't, I always read this, not that he was a coward, but rather that the majesty, the appearance of Galactus kind of overwhelms him. Mm. And that he gets cold feet because he realizes he doesn't have the right, but yeah. it's I think it's written really well, and he, I don't think he's ever seen again. His only role was for this, to kind of get cold feet and back off. Eternity originally appeared in the Doctor Strange, late in the Strange Tales series. In fact, I think it was the end of Ditko's run when Eternity shows up, just at the end of a like a 12 or a 13 part arc. And he's sort of a doc, he's a cosmic character, but he, he started in Doctor Strange. Getting to the next to the last page, it's a full page kind of collage of all the alien faces, sort of echoing the front cover as everybody's kind of on this cosmic trip going, oh, wow, man, Galactus, my mind is blown. And then they don't tell you what they learned, which I think is just brilliant. The last page, I just got the biggest kick out of that, saying, oh, knowledge has faded. And that is a callback to one of the early Thor stories in Journey into Mystery. When a reporter, this will be my last side story for you, a reporter by the name of something like Harry Hanks or or, uh, Harry Hawkins gets the jump on Thor, actually figures out Thor's secret identity, 
and threatens to expose him unless he takes him to Asgard and gives him an, an exclusive story. So Thor, basically saying, <laughs> be careful what you wish for, agrees to it, takes him to Asgard, and discovers that the Absorbing Man is doing an assault on Asgard. So there's this battle royal. The reporter is pretty much forgotten. He's just on the sidelines. And all hell breaks loose in Asgard. Ultimately, Odin is the one who defeats the uh, Absorbing Man. And as they get ready to go back to Earth, the reporter discovers that his photographer's camera has been smashed. So he's like, but I got no proof. And Thor just kind of smiles at him and says, well, <laughs> I only promised that I'd take you to yeah. Asgard. I didn't say you'd have the story. <laughs> so this last page is, is kind of harkens back to that, like, well, <laughs> no, don't remember, John. What a shame. And we'll just keep rolling on from here. Anyways, that's those are my comments. I was just I wanted to share it because this was atypical in its format and its presentation, and I thought that fit the definition of Assistant Editor's Month. Sounds good to me. You did a fine job. I just came across a word on, let's see, I guess that's the last page. He says the Fantastic Four fans are going to plot. And I'm looking for P-L-O-T-Z. Yes. What is that? They're going to plot when they read this. That's the word he used, and I assume that he means that they're going to riot or they're going to vomit <laughs> um, or they're just going to they're going to have conniption fits. I've not heard that particular word before, but that's no. how I get it from the usage. I think the other thing, I was trying to look for Reed's hands and his uh, shackles to see if page 8. Yes. I'm with you. Bottom right-hand corner. I, I still can't understand why he doesn't try to stretch. And I guess he's just trying to be honest or show him that he can be trusted, but he could stretch out of there easily. I would think. Well, the issue before, which is in the reprinted in the trade paperback, when the FF show up here, he's in the process of being, he's on the rack. Mm-hmm. He's being stretched like a, a bed sheet. In all directions, uh, they're torturing him until uh, Ben frees him. So it's unclear if he has lost his ability to stretch as a result of that or if he's just, I think he's taking the high road. He's basically saying, yeah, I'm on trial. We'll talk issues here. I won't physically try yeah. to escape. Besides, he has no means to escape. He was transported to here against his will. He was kidnapped. That was a long, ongoing plot thread that is in this uh, trade paperback, but they're not mentioning here. So, yeah, I think I think it's symbolic that he's just yeah. standing there on trial, accepting it, Does and he, hoping that the greater good is communicated to everybody. Yeah, because he even says himself he's guilty. Yeah, of, of saving Galactus. Right. There's no question. Mm-hmm. The ethical question of whether he could or should, that's that's the that, bottom line. And that's the one that, that Byrne and Marvel always wrestled with, saying, Boy, we painted ourselves into a corner. How are we going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. And so they got out of it by saying, uh, you don't remember the answer, do you? Mm-hmm. So, oh. What do you got for us? Well, that was that was pretty much it. Just my questions. I think I would like to get this trade paperback, get the full essence of the story. But I recommend it. It's the short way to get those issues that are probably, well, you can find them in quarter bins, I suppose. Copyright mm-hmm. uh, Professor... Uh, yeah. Middleton. Um, at any rate, you can find the trade paperback. Remember, the trade paperback is titled The Trial of Galactus. Trial this of Galactus. issue and the arc was called The Trial of Reed Richards. Mm-hmm. You you do want the one called The Trial of Galactus. Okay. It'll, it's around. You should be able to find it at any comic shop and certainly on the Internet. I sort of do have it because I have the DVD-ROM collector's edition, the 44 years of Fantastic Four. But oh. I thought it would be easier just to get the trade or a hardcover if, if one exists or instead of having um, to go through the DVD-ROM every time. 
Yeah, you know, I strongly recommend the whole burn run, but uh, I'm trying to think what what issue this begins with. And I'm it starts with the end of the Nova storyline, but I'll be damned if I can remember. And it, I'm looking flipping through the trade here, trying to see if the, oh here it is. Okay, the last page in the trade says this story originally appeared in issues 242 through 244 and issues 257 through 262 of the Fantastic Four, and it lists the various credits. However, excerpts were made to, to try to condense it. So there's your answer. If you want to read the actual issues, there you go. Okay. I recommend that you get the paper copy because there's nothing like having a comic book in your hands and smelling yeah. them. And the ads are probably taken out of the trade. like usual. Absolutely. Yeah. So I went straight to the Fantastic Four page and bullet, uh, bullpen bulletins to see if there was anything that caught my eye, but no, nothing. No stories that I could gleam out of it. wonder if they want us to grade this. Oh, I'm always, <laughs> you hadn't even thought I'm, of that. I'm always bad at grading things because I think everything's great. <laughs> I find uh, the grading process to be perhaps my least enjoyable part of, yeah. of the show, I'll confess, because it seems to be such a, a belabored point. I will give you a couple quick comments as far as grading it if if we're going to adhere to that format. Okay. One, I think the cover, it's very strong. It's a symbolic cover, which I like. I hate word balloons because uh, I think they, they dumb it down and they're always aimed at younger people. I like this. I like the coloring of the cover. There's no question when you see this, Reed is in change, Reed is on trial. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give this a very high grade. I'm going to say it's A, A-. minus. There's not a lot of action on the cover. I admit there's no dramatics. Well, there's no action. It is dramatic, so I'm going to give it an A minus. As far as the the story, yeah, it's really wordy. It's the penultimate issue on this arc in this storyline, so it should pay off really well. And I think at a certain level it does, but at a certain level it cheats and gets away with it. So I'm going to give it an A minus there. The inking I thought was okay, except I'm looking at the trade paperback, so the colors are a bit more vibrant. They're not soaking into the page to the newsprint as much as the newsprint copy would, but I really like Burns' artwork. There's not a lot of action going on. There's no real fight going on. This is a cerebral issue. I'm going to give it high marks for being the high point of the series. So, uh, you know, an A, A minus. Overall grade, it's in the A category for me. That's one of the reasons why I chose it. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there. What do you think? I'm going to have to agree with you all the way around. I love the cover because my favorite color is red. So that would catch my eye to start with anyway, and it really does make Reed pop, really makes him stand out, which is the purpose of the cover anyway. So I would probably give that an A, maybe A minus, because personally I don't know all the characters in the background. I don't think you're not supposed to. I don't think you're supposed to, but but it's fun to look to see if you can see anything. There's Thing and like you said, Sue and Human Torch. And I wouldn't have noticed Charlie Brown or Linus down at the bottom unless you had brought it up inside art anyone who knows me i don't know anything about art it just <laughs> either looks good to me or doesn't look good to me and this looks good to me I, I couldn't tell you if an inking was bad or not i can tell when a color is like if uh superman has a yellow cape i'll notice that of course but sure i'll give this an a too and the story i understood it so that's a plus for me i'll give that an a too Probably disappointed a lot of people how it ended that there wasn't a significant smash buckling ending to finish a story arc, but I'd never read the story at all anyway, so I enjoyed it and would like to get into fully 
to see the whole story arc as one story and see how much I like it from there. So overall, I, I guess that would be an A too. So I guess we both consider it an A book. All right. Back to the Bins doesn't usually take a break right now, but I think Kirk and I need a little breather after that. So we've put together a little skit for you. We both hope you enjoy it. In a world grown cold, the internet... Uh, Mr. Soundman? Mr. Soundman? Hey, Mr. Soundman. Yeah. It wasn't that cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll turn it down a bit. Thank you. In a world grown cold... The internet radio broadcast, Back to the Bins, has two podcast listeners entangled in a bitter email-related feud from the great state of West Virginia. These two names are synonymous with Back to the Bins, Kirk Greenfield and Russell Bragg. It all came to a head one early afternoon in November. Word of mouth got to Russell that Kirk was in town. Russell went looking high and low and finally found Kirk at the local Denny's. Kirk Greenfield. Russell Bragg. I heard you were in town. Yup. You know, this state isn't big enough for two email writers to back to the bins. Yup. You know what we have to do to sell this, don't you? Drag race. No. Boxing. Indirect coma. No. <gasps> no, you can't mean. Yes, I do mean. We're playing for desperate stakes. We must play. Sergeant Rock, Paper, Scissors. I guess if that's the only way. Okay. Let's go. Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, again. Rock, paper, paper, scissors. Scissors, Scissors. tie, go again. Rock, Rock, paper, paper, scissors. scissors. Paper, tie again. Let's go again. Some say this went on for an hour or two, but that could be an exaggeration. Every single game ended in a tie. Go again. Rock, Rock. Paper. paper, scissors, scissors. paper. Tie again! It was Russell who wanted to give in first. No, I can't go on. I can't go on. But it was Kirk who magnanimously said, Wait, who says there can't be two people from the same state sending an email to back to the bins? I think it was Dr. Bill. Well, I for one don't want to feud about this with you anymore. I never wanted to feud in the first place. I think back to the bins pressured us into it. Why don't we just put this behind us and send in an email to Back to the Bins together? Great idea. Want to start one now? Yep. Legends say the two West Virginia podcasters became friends, and the mailbag at Back to the Bins grew two sizes that year. Uh, I guess we're on to the DC book, which would be mine. When Kirk told me that he was doing Trial of Reed Richards, I decided to do a trial book as well. And the only trial book I could think of that I had in my collection was Trial of the Flash. Since Kirk brought you the last issue of his trial, I decided to bring the last issue of The Flash's Trial, which takes place in Flash number 350, which is the very final issue of The Flash from the Silver Age, Bronze Age. And this concludes the trial. The Flash was on trial for murder, the murder of the reverse Flash. And you don't have to feel bad about having a, somebody else write your synopsis, because that's exactly what I did. Okay. Mine comes from Comic Vine, which you can find at www.comicvine.com, which is where I get most of my synopses for my show. We'll just get started here. I'll go through my synopsis. I do have a few notes, which I found here and there. And I think there's a short interview from... Carmine Infantino, and then we'll 
just get into the book uh, page by page to see if because you have the book right you yes you i have found, it in front of my hand you found the book okay yep and of course all this comic information comes to us from mike's amazing world which you can find at www.dcindexes.com title of our story is Flash Fleas. Cover date is October 1985. On sale date is July 11th, 1985. Cover price is a whopping $1.25, and yours was only 60 cents, I believe. Your Fantastic Four book. You're right. Writer is Carrie Bates. Penciler is Carmine Infantino. Your anchor is Frank McLaughlin. Two letterers, Timothy Harkin and Milt Snappen. And your colorist is Carl Gafford. Your cover credits go to penciler Carmine Infantino and anchor Klaus Jansen. And your editor is Carrie Bates. I'm glad I didn't accidentally say Julius Schwartz because I'm used to saying, and your editor is Julius Schwartz. <laughs> Originally landing on stands during the latter part of 1985, and right in the thick of DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths, number 350 wraps up the loose ends of the Speedster's solo title and offered the hero some peace that would be stripped away utterly over the publisher's multiverse-shattering maxi-series. Central City Police Captain Daryl Fry issues an arrest warrant for the fugitive, The Flash. The Flash's defense attorney, Cecile Horton, pays a visit to his parents, Dr. Henry and Nora Allen. The Flash's rogues gallery, imprisoned by Professor Zoom, are left to Paris in a rapidly shrinking glass case. Stripped of all their signature weapons, their fate seems sealed. Fortunately, Professor Zoom missed the Mirror Master's special mirrored contact lenses. The Mirror Master focuses a laser through his lenses, destroying the rogues' prison. Free at last, the rogues immediately begin plotting their revenge. The Flash continues his conversation with juror Nathan Newberry at the courthouse. Professor Zoom attacks, leveling the courthouse with a missile strike. Grabbing Newberry, the Flash vibrates their molecules in intangibility, slipping beneath the earth to escape the blast. As soon as the Flash with Newberry surface, a police officer attempts to arrest the Flash. The Flash flees with Newberry. Onlookers mistakenly blame the Flash for the destruction of the courthouse. Worse, they also believe that the Flash has abducted Newberry. The Flash realizes that continuing to smear his public reputation was the real purpose between Professor Zoom's attack. The rogues make their way back to Central City. The Flash with Newberry visits his parents. The rogues call on famed tailor Paul Gamby to outfit them with new costume. Saying his goodbyes, the Flash with Newberry traveled to the 25th century in pursuit of Professor Zoom. The rogues raid the Flash Museum, taking out its curator, Dexter Miles. Combining their scientific acumen, the rogues manage to work the Flash's cosmic treadmill, sending them forward in time to the 25th century. The Flash discovers that there are no historical records indicating that Professor Zoom ever came back from the dead. The Flash, with Newberry, continue their investigation of Professor Zoom's laboratory. There they trigger a booby trap, which almost kills them. Though they are able to narrowly escape death, all possible evidence in the laboratory has been destroyed. Fortunately, a witness is found, who saw the man who previously broke into Professor Zoom's laboratory. A memory probe of the witness reveals that the resurrected Professor Zoom has actually been Abracadabra all along. The Flash with Newberry traveled to the 64th century in pursuit of Abracadabra. The rogues' investigation into the ruins of Professor Zoom's laboratory also puts them on the trail of Abracadabra. The Flash and Newberry are ambushed by Abracadabra and are rendered unconscious. Abracadabra reveals that the entire plot revolves around a wager. To win, Abracadabra needs to keep the Flash in the 64th century for the next several hours to irrevocably alter the Flash's fate and history. While imprisoned by Abracadabra, the Flash begins to suspect the truth about Newberry. The rogues storm Abracadabra's stronghold, immediately falling into a trap. Working together, the Mirror Master and Captain Boomerang manage to free the Flash and Newberry. The Flash returns the favor by freeing the rogues. The rogues level their weapons in unison, blasting through to Abracadabra's command center. 
Abracadabra flees, only to be taken down by the Flash. Abracadabra's assistant, Snurf, I think it's Snurf, S-N-U-R-F-F, Snurf, okay. pleads with the Flash to remain in the 64th century a while longer to no avail. The Flash returns the rogues to the 20th century, but allows them to go their own way. With Abracadabra's brainwashing of the jurors of the Flash trial revealed, the Flash is acquitted of all charges. The Flash, though, never returns to the 20th century. From the 64th century, the Flash journeys to the 30th century to pay a visit to his late wife's parents. There, the Flash learns how, upon her death, Iris West Allen's soul was drawn back to the 30th century, where her family had placed it in a new body. It was Iris who journeyed back to the 20th century, taking possession of Newberry's body, to aid the Flash during his trial. At long last, the Flash and Iris are reunited to resume their happy lives as husband and wife. And I'll add, but not for long, because the crisis on Infinite Earth is about to occur. Mm-hmm. This story has been reprinted just once, and Showcase presents the Trial of the Flash trade paperback from 2011. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, if you like it all in black and white, then... Oh. Yeah, that's the only thing. And if you'd like a podcast with another perspective on this particular issue, you can look up Tom vs. The Flash, which is hosted by Tom Caters. That website is tomvsjla.lisbon.com, and... I think if you just go there, you'll just scroll down and you'll find the, the episode there, which still works, because I went to listen to it to, to remind myself on my notes. First of all, The Flash next appears in Crisis on Infinite Earths number two, but I th- if I remember right, I think that's just a, a visual. He appears to Batman when he's trying to arrest Joker, and, and uh, we'll understand more why that visual is there in issue number eight, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's see. Prior to his appearance in the guise of the Reverse Flash, Abracadabra's last appearance was in Flash number 300 in the story 1981, A Flash Odyssey. In that issue, Cadabra tried to convince Flash that he was not a super self via elaborate delusion. The trick was broken when Cadabra included Reverse Flash in his taunts. As we all know, you can't have a Reverse Flash without the Flash. In the trial, Cadabra appears to be revisiting this plan from Flash number 300 by introducing another illusion of Reverse Flash, albeit in an elaborate effort to save the Flash and cement his own legacy in the process. On page 29, this issue is the first and last appearance of Snurf. Abra's plan is to keep Flash in the 64th century long enough to avoid his death and Crisis on Infinite Earths. Everything from ensuring a murder conviction in number 348 to destroying Zoom's lab earlier in this issue was a feint by Abra to lure Flash into the 64th century as part of a trick to change history and elevate his art. The use of the final fate in panel 4 is a nod to the cover of Christ on Infinite number 8, which went on sale three weeks after Flash number 350, which I didn't actually look at that until, let's see. Where's that? Uh, it says it's on page, let's see, I lost my place again. Uh, the use of the final fate in panel 4, but it doesn't give a, oh, on page 29. Okay. 29. Page 29, panel 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. I'm confused because that oh. seems to be yeah. abracadabra. I don't know what you're Well, that's to. okay. Yeah. I don't know what you're trying to say either. So. doesn't remind me of anything of Crisis Infinite Earth 8 at all. And now for the interview with... Oh, I think I said there was Carmine Infantino as Carrie Bates. So I misspoke there. And this comes from speedforce.org. And the writer is Kelson Viber. It's just a question and answer. Question. Did you know when the death of Iris arc came to a close that you would be revisiting Professor Zoom and the murder four years down the road? In the interviewing years, there is a clear separation of Barry from that incident and his past life. But eventually it all came back with a vengeance. When read at once, it feels like the tension from Iris' murder and the fate of Zoom is hanging over Flash, 
throughout those years and comes crashing down in a trial. Terry Bates, you're right, for a couple of years back then, the prime engine of the book was Barry moving on after the Irish chapter of his life had come to an end. I can't remember exactly when the idea of Zoom resurfacing occurred to me, but I do recall his return was always directly linked with Barry's impending marriage to Fiona. I found something perversely irresistible about Zoom becoming obsessed with making history repeat itself by robbing his arch-foe of his second wife, just as he had killed Iris. And of course, it became the catalyst for Flash killing Zoom in order to protect his new bride. Even though he acted in self-defense in the heat of the moment, the notion of a high-profile superhero committing manslaughter for real, let alone being charged with murder, was quite a radical departure for a mainstream DC book in that era. In that era, mind you. Not now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, question. If not for the advent of Christ and I and Infinite Earths, what direction would you have taken the Flash title after the trial story? Would the resolution have been much different than what was published, or if so, did you have stories completed that were discarded? Terry Bates. Because DC had given me over a year's advance notice of the crisis and Flash's inevitable demise, I was focusing on all my energies on the trialist storyline, since it would now carry through until the very end of the book's run. So in all honesty, I never contemplated what Flash's life might have been like after the verdict. But the far more interesting question is what might have been had there been no crisis event. Well, for one thing, the trial would have probably ended in a good eight or nine issues earlier. Flash would have been vindicated and found not guilty in the court of public opinion, but perhaps not by the court system. In fact, before the crisis entered into things, I do remember toying with the idea of Flash being found guilty and going on the run, literally. This would have kicked off a new story arc which would have had Flash continuing to do his good deeds as a wanted man with an arrest warrant hanging over his head. Sort of a variation of the Green Hornet concept of a hero who the authorities view as a criminal. Most or, about, or the fugitive. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. What I liked most about this idea was the delicious irony of a Flash who ends up joining his own rogues gallery. Yeah, that would have been different. But if you look at the cover, you the reader definitely knows this is the last issue. Right. So they must have resolved everything, and they weren't going to go beyond 350. So that's all my notes and all my synopsis. I don't know if you want to go page by page since... Well, I have a couple of questions okay. about this. Okay. This is a double-sized issue. Yes. On the cover, can you recognize who he's holding hands with as the Flash walks off into the sunset? Clearly, that's supposed to be Iris, but... Do you recognize her from this image? Not from the new image inside, no, but it it looks like how Iris used to look on the back, because Iris had short hair, yeah, so that might have been a mistake there. (laughs) Oh, I I didn't know if if this would have given it away, or if it... I don't know, it might have, it might have, because that definitely doesn't look like the woman inside. Well, I kind of get, you know, I'm not going to argue with the the guy who wrote it, because he says he had a year's advance notice but whenever i see a a double-sized issue i always kind of look to see what's going on on page 20 out of a 40-page book was this in fact two issues that got jammed together Hmm. or was there a natural break did they did something happen i don't see a real obvious break although i suppose with a little different artwork there could have been yeah i think this was conceived as a 40-page send up or or Hmm. end of it Mm -hmm. I'm kind of rambling here, but the the tail end of it, the happy ending with, oh, look, there's Iris reborn or re-transplanted or something, overly rosy as far as I'm concerned. That's <laughs> It just feels tacked on. But I'm not following the series, so maybe longtime readers felt vindicated or satisfied with that. I thought it was just a little bit tacky. But. Mm, very possible. I think people really had a problem with Iris being killed all that long ago. Uh, they they any character being killed True. Since, seems to set somebody off, whether it's Gwen 
or Lady Dorma mm -hmm. or you know, fill in the blank. I still haven't gotten over the Supergirl being killed. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also in Crisis, isn't it? That's right. Is that seven? Seven. Okay. Hey, on page three, the fourth panel, Okay. it's a set of three faces uh -huh. with uh, Barry Allen on the left and a disguised Barry Allen on the right, but in the middle, grossly deformed, beaten. Is that still the same character? Is that supposed to be Barry Allen yeah. being uh, beat up by Big Sur? That's right. I remember that cover from, mm -hmm. I don't know which issue it was, 346, seeing it on the stands and going, what in the world? Mm -hmm. Because it was such close up and so, not gross, but it was so graphic. Yeah. And so it made me pick up the issue and go, what in the heck are they doing in this series? Mm -hmm. Because it sure seemed like they were beating the pulp literally out of the flash, and I did not know where this was headed. And I didn't buy it, literally. I put it back on the on the stands and... Mm -hmm. Stayed away from it until Crisis started, and I think I bought all of the Crisis issues. Uh -huh. And then when 8 came out, I rushed out, and I think I bought a copy of this issue, but who knows where it is in my collection. It was not something that was of high importance to me. I just figured I, I would need it to try to figure out what in the world was going on with Crisis. Yeah. And I think that was a mistake. I don't think I needed it. Hmm. I still don't really understand why Barry felt that he t had to change his features. I don't think anybody really would have cared whether he was Flash was Barry Allen or not. They would have been relieved right. that he wasn't dead or anything like that. And that would have put Fiona Webb back in her right mind because she went crazy after this, thinking that Barry left her at the altar. Oh, gee, where have we heard that one yeah. before? Uh, Polaris, for uh, one. Um, <laughs> there's been a number of them, as I recall. Mm -hmm. This character, Nathan, the bald-headed man with a mustache, uh-huh, who's assisting Barry Allen. Is his name Nathan? Yeah, I think Nathan. you can call me Nathan, he says. Nathan Newberry, Nathan Newberry yeah. is it? Uh-huh. There's a hint someplace in here where somebody makes reference to, well, you know who you're running with, don't you? And Nathan changes the topic real quick, obviously saying, oh, we'll deal with that later, or never mind them, or something. I thought that was a real clear indication that he should not be trusting Nathan, that there is some, that there was a subplot or that there was going to be a big reveal here. Some, some mystery, yeah. But I don't, I don't recall what that solution was, nor why it was important, and I can't find it now. I'll let it go. It's mm -hmm. probably, probably in here somewhere. Yeah, about halfway through, but there's some, somebody says something to him like, well, you know, it, it's so obviously shoved in there. It's so obviously, it didn't have to be said, but the writer put it in there to tip the reader off that all was not as it seemed with Nathan. And now I don't recall who Nathan is hmm. or who he's revealed to be, but I kept waiting for the big reveal like, oh, that's Dr. Zoom. Or, you know, he's been playing him all the way along, but that's yeah. not the case what it was. Right. Well, you want any more comments or you want to read this? Might as well. Cause, uh, I actually didn't. I, I went through it once just to see if anything caught my eye that I might want to talk about. But I think the synopsis pretty much tells it all. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty It made long. more sense in the synopsis than it did when I read it. Yeah. I will say on page 20, I always did like when they were referring to Reverse Flash and he was born in 2633 and died in 1983. I always thought that <laughs> it's weird, but... Uh, yeah, it works. It works. No wonder he's mad when he comes back later in. And uh, Wally West Flash issues, I think. <laughs> Mad as in insane uh, or mad as in angry? Well, I think he, it's another, like a facelift. He, he actually turns himself into Barry Allen mm. and he, he, he does go mad when he finds out that his hero, the Flash, killed him, Ebard Thawne. 
So I think that sort of made him go crazy. Okay. It's been a while since I read that one, too. But I guess we can go do our grading if you're sure you don't have anything else. No. No. It is pretty hard. And it's awful, awful long. It was about 23, 24, maybe almost 30 issues in this whole story arc. That represents more than two years. Yeah. That's why Back to the Vent makes fun of it all the time, because it just seemed to go on and on and on. I don't think it ever did sidetrack. Uh, I think it was trial straight through. I could be wrong on that. Go with the cover, and I would say it's iconic, because you know exactly what it's it's the last issue, and you know what's going to happen inside if... If you have it, I think I would have bought it off the stand, which I think I did. This isn't the original copy I have in my hand. Some of the historical characters in Flash Comics, you have his parents straight across from each other. I think that's his lawyer right down from his dad, Dexter Miles, who heads the Flash Museum as the curator. I could be wrong, but I think that's the elongated man, the bottom left person mm-hmm. facial okay. there. Ralph Dibney. Yeah. And then, of course, the Kid Flash, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't really know who that... That metal one's the only one I don't know, because I think that's okay. Fiona Webb down at the bottom, his, okay. his past fiancé. So, being what it is, I think I'd give the, the coloring and all. It really does make all the colors pop, I think, and I would give it a, an A-. minus. I think I would have hated to pay $1.25 for this, but <laughs> I was a poor kid. The art inside, I think, is the same. Carmine Infantino is the penciler in both, so... It, it's pretty similar. I would give that an A, too. And the story, I'd probably give it a B because it's sort of, you sort of knew all along that the Flash was going to be considered innocent, if not by the court system, at least by the public. Mm-hmm. So I think you, we all knew that he was going to be eventually found not guilty. And it is kind of wordy, and it is confusing. If this is the only book you had in the series, I think you'd be confused. I'll just give it a B. So I guess I would give it a, an A-. minus as a grade what do you think well i'm afraid i'm going to be a bit tougher than you are (laughs) uh this um and again since the grading is is very subjective and and not my favorite part i recognize this is a final issue and it's somewhat representative on the cover but i don't think a lot of the artwork i'm going to give it a b minus or a c Mm -hmm. Uh, the colors are uninspired it may be symbolic as the last issue you get that message very clearly goodbye flash very well done. It telegraphs what's going on, mm-hmm. but I'm sorry. I don't care for the artwork. Mm-hmm. Turning to the inside, a lot of this is very cartoonish. I think some of it reminds me of George Tuska, whose artwork I really generally dislike, although some of the classic stories that I've enjoyed over the years turned out to be George Tuska, so I guess I shouldn't use that yardstick. I don't particularly care for the artwork. I don't think it's terribly inspired. I had a real hard time with some of these floating heads and ghostly images coming in and out. Hmm. I'm trying to think of positive things to to say. You don't have to. I guess I'm going to say, <laughs> see, for the story, I'm not a fan of The Flash. I recognize this as summing things up, a difficult act to try to tie all the loose ends together. I assume that that works, but I was not moved by it. I will say, see at best, as far as I'm concerned, a thoroughly forgettable story, a thoroughly forgettable issue. And only significant because we know that Crisis on Infinite Earths number eight follows immediately afterwards, which puts this in a different light. Yeah. Oh, I did want to point out one other thing. In the ads, something just jumped out at me. Okay. Turn to page 11 and look at the other side of the, the, the ad page that faces it. It's not 10 because 10 is, is the comic artwork. But if you've got the original book, uh-huh. 
this page of ads, look at the ad in the bottom left-hand corner. It's a very simple display ad that's for the American Red Cross that says, Bill Cosby says, if you can't send you, send money. Boy, is he ever held in a different light today. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out. It caught my eye, and I thought, whoops, that's all I've got on this, okay. really. I, I actually enjoyed the letters page and a couple of the uh, comments from Carrie Bates. And, and you know, I, I always enjoy reading letters pages because I learn more about the series or what happened three months yeah. earlier that they're commenting on. Right. Sometimes that helps to, to put the series in perspective, so... I will give a little plus for that. I especially like the goodbye by Carrie Bates. And the meanwhile, on the inside back cover, mm -hmm. there's a little blurb by Roy Thomas that is very interesting to read. But that's all I've got. That's all i got, too. Well, I do like the Superpowers collection on the back. I always like the Superpowers figures, which I'm starting to think of trying to collect some again. I don't know if I'll actually get very far, because as expensive as they are, but it's a dream. Well, I enjoyed working with you on this. Well, thank you very much for putting this together, Russell. I... Well, I don't know who's going to be hosting next week, but I'm sure ours will be the best one of the month. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> no question about that. It's been the best one so far. That's right. Well, why don't you tout your stuff, and then we'll close out the episode. Oh, it's been a while since I've done an episode, but uh, <laughs> I'm the co-host of the Imperious Rex Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast with my daughter, Ren. We were trying to do them once a month or once every two months, but we're a little behind. There are about 10 or 11 episodes in the series so far. They're a little hard to find. You have to search for them either on um, Tumblr or on Your Listen. I have not gotten them on to uh, any of the mainstream holding channels yet, but with some encouragement, we might do some more. She has graduated from college, which you would think means that there would be more time to do more episodes. But she's kind of uh, outgrown some of things, and mm. she's trying to figure out what to do with her life. And so I'm I'm not cracking the whip to try to do too many more of these. Maybe this winter we'll run another issue or two out. They are basically the Tales to Astonish Adventures of Namor from issue 70 through we've gotten to about 80 or 81. I was hoping to continue through at least the Gene Colan issues, which are a year or two and maybe all the way to Tales to Astonish 101, and then into the start of Submariner's own series in 1968. But uh, we'll see how far we get. Like I said, I've been enjoying it so far. I've, I don't know anything about Submariner, so I'm pretty much learning from you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> David Weider said the same thing when I told him that I was learning Daredevil from him. I host the DC Comics Present Show which you can find through on iTunes or Stitcher. And the show's website is www.brackaboutcomics.com. Right now I'm on hiatus, and when I get started again, I'll be going on DC Comics Presents issue number 68, where Superman teams up with Fixin. So I hope that'll be a good story to start back up on. Unless you have anything else to, to say, uh, I wish the... Listeners, thank you for listening, and come back next week for another episode of Assistant Editors Month. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, Bill, for giving us this opportunity, and hope you enjoyed your break. Thank you very Good night. much. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. 
Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. I have a confession. I'm not really from West Virginia. Yeah. So when they are looking for the the most prolific letter writer or biggest fan of West Virginia, I don't qualify. Oh. I'm actually from Ohio. I only work in West Virginia. Oh. I yield the title to you. I won't tell anybody if you don't tell anybody. Oh, okay. <laughs>